Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. So from my side also welcome. It was, uh, it was wonderful to, to worship with all of you and to see all of you really <clears throat> enjoying the Lord's presence and just calling out to Him and, and praising Him. It's, uh, it's really special. Um, so I, I started a while ago just sharing about temptation, and I actually want to continue um, with that. And <clears throat> we sometimes, we, we forget what a big difference, what an immense practical difference overcoming temptation in our lives can actually have in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. If you think about it, almost every bad thing that has come into your life has come in through temptation that you did not overcome. Either through temptation that you fell into or temptation that someone close to fell into and it had an effect on you. <clears throat> and, you know, if you, if you just imagine your life, if you could resist every temptation, how would your life be different? How many arguments and fights wouldn't you have? How many opportunities wouldn't you miss? How many more opportunities would you be able to grab hold of and make use of? How much more would you testify and witness, like, like Leo was sharing to us? Because when, when you want to, and when the opportunity is there, then the temptation to not use it is also there. The temptation to be more afraid of the person um, and care more about what the person thinks than what God thinks. So, our lives would be very different. Here's the other thing. I was, I was thinking about this yesterday. Just think of all the guilt you wouldn't feel. <laughs> because that's usually what happens, isn't it? We feel the temptation, we fall for the temptation, and then we feel guilty about it. And, and, the, and the devil is very sly, he's very nasty, because he encourages us to fall for the temptation, and then... When we do fall for the temptation, he points a finger at us and says, Look at you. Look at what you did. You nasty, lousy excuse for a Christian you. Look what you've done. <laughs> uh, so, but we'll have much more peace of mind if we, if we resist temptations. And just, just imagine, like I said, what would society be like if everyone always resisted temptation? Our streets would be much safer and more pleasant our uh, the crime rate would be much lower you you actually probably wouldn't need an electric fence and an alarm system um, less of us would get COVID because the people who would be tempted <laughs> to go and you know break the rules and go and party and and pick up COVID and carry it over and, and, and infect everyone else they would resist that temptation our hospitals would be more empty. You'd probably need less um, insurance. You'd probably get a lot more service for your money, you know, the tax money that you pay. This um, last Sunday I drove to, to Secunda, <clears throat> and when I, when I drove back in the evening, it was dark, um, there were a lot of potholes, so I was like swimming... Uh, amongst the portals, but I, I, I came around a bend 
and I got to a pothole that I just couldn't avoid because it was across the whole road. <laughs> and I just didn't have time to slow down and stop. So I went through the pothole and it was, you know, one of those hard ones. And I pulled to the side of the road and there were a couple of other people also standing on the side of the road. Sort of checked my tires and, you know, on sort of a superficial inspection, they looked like they were okay. But I, j I just got on to the N17 and drove about a kilometer and I, were, and I heard bam, you know, and the tire exploded. And um, I had to put in the, I mean, you know, if, if the people who had to fix <laughs> those roads resisted the temptation to steal the money that is available to fix those roads and resisted the temptation to, you know, not fix the road and do, do other stuff, then that wouldn't have happened, you know, and it wouldn't have cost me three, four thousand rand, you know, to not only repair, you know, put on new tires, but, you know, had the, have the rims, you know, fixed because they, they were bent out of shape as well. So, I mean, our society, I mean, when we start thinking about how a society would be different if not only we but everyone resisted temptation, it would be, then you start seeing what a big deal it is, right? Then you start seeing it's really a big thing. And temptation always starts, and that's what I want to focus on today. I'm going to share again from, from uh, mostly from uh, James chapter 4. But our temptation, temptation starts with disordered desires inside of us, with the desires of our hearts. So let's read um, in the book of James. You guys can just throw it up on the screen. James 1 verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. <clears throat> and then um, James 3, the last verse says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then chapter 4 verse 1 begins, what causes quarrels? The opposite of peace, obviously. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Or a better translation um, of that would probably be the spirit he caused to dwell in us yearns or longs jealously. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, and let me just make a note here of something the Holy Spirit showed me that I mustn't forget. What, what, we, what we see here is it talks about two kinds of desires, especially in that f the f those first two verses. The second kind, it says, um, let me just read verse 2 for you. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. So when it says there you desire and do not have, the, the word used there for desire is, is a, a Greek word called epithumia. Epithumia. Uh, and it's a, it's a word that appears all over the New Testament, all over the place. And most of the time it means um, lustful desires or 
wrong desires or carnal fleshly desires, worldly desires. But it specifically means disordered desires because the, the word epi there is, a, is, a, a, is just a, um, a, something that, that sort of strengthens and intensifies the word. So it's not just ordinary desires, it's epi-desires. Um, you've probably heard when there's an earthquake, there's the, they talk about the epicenter of the earthquake. That's where the earthquake is the strongest. Now, now, just like you have the epicenter of the earthquake where it's the strongest, you have epithumia, the epi-desires, the, what you can call over-desires. And our problem often isn't just that we desire the wrong things, but that we desire the wrong things and the right things in the wrong way. You see, our problem so often is that we desire other things more than we desire God. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And, and usually when, when the Bible is speaking of idolatry, that's this word, epithumia, over-desire, is never far away. We tend to have disordered desires. And, and it's, it's not wrong to have a desire for a nice house. Or it's not wrong to have a desire for a spouse. But the problem is we often have over-desires for those things. And we desire those things more than we desire God. And then they are wrong. Um, idolatry is not just the, the wrong things that we desire, but the right things that we desire in the wrong way. Making Sometimes idolatry is, is making good things ultimate things. And, and that's why I say our temptation starts with our over-desires, our disordered desires. I, I once heard a story of a, of a young man who was a student at a university. And he was, he was quite handsome, so the, the ladies really liked him. And he liked the ladies. And... Uh, he, he was known as quite a, a wild guy. So, but, but, but what he'd usually do is he'd, he'd sort of pursue a, a woman, seduce her, get her to sleep with him, and then he'd sort of lose interest and move on to the next one. Do the same. Seduce her, get her to sleep with him, and then move on to the next one. And then at some stage he, he got sort of in contact with, um, with a Christian message and, and, and he sort of made a commitment to the Lord, turned away, repented. Um, but then something happened. He, he, stopped, he stopped sleeping around. He stopped having sex just with, with whoever he wanted to and, and uh, you know, repented of that. But they found that almost every meeting that this guy attended, there was conflict because he always wanted to be the center of attraction. He always wanted to have the last word and he always wanted to have the last say and he always wanted the meeting to work out the way that he wanted it to. And, you know, the, the Christian guys who were working with him realized that he had a, a um, what shall I call it, a disordered desire for, on the surface, which looked like, a, like sexual lust. You know, just, you know, being promiscuous and, and sleeping around with, with lots of different women. But when they thought about it carefully and debriefed him and spoke to him about it, they realized the reason why he always, you know, would, as soon as he, you know, was able to seduce a woman, 
and, and get it to bed, move on to the next one, was the, the thing he really wanted was not the, the sex. It was to be able to control someone, to be able to get someone to like him and then you know, he'd lose interest and move on. And that was the same underlying. So, so the surface level looked like sexual lust, but underneath it there was a, a desire for control, a selfish desire. For, I want to be in control. And that same desire... I mean, he repented of, of the, the symptom of, of sexual promiscuity, but it started surfacing in other ways where he wanted to control all the meetings and have the last say and have everyone do what he wanted to do. And, and that was the same desire for control that underlayed. It's a disordered desire. And, and so sometimes we look at the fruit desires, the symptom desires, and we think we try and fight those. We need to fight those. We need to fix those. We need to repent of those, and we do. But sometimes we miss the deeper underlying selfish desires that cause. And so often we deal with a fruit, but we don't deal with the root, and then the fruit just pops up in different ways. Other fruit just pop up in our, uh, in our lives. And that, I, I mentioned that last time I shared about, uh, about James 4, um, the other word used for desire, or in, in the ESV, passions, is the word hedone. And you, you can probably hear it sounds like hedonism. We, in fact, get our English word hedonism from the Greek word hedone, which means selfish desires. At the heart and underlying all of our disordered desires are selfish desires, things that we want for ourselves um, that cause us to want all kinds of other things in the wrong way. And the thing is, we, we underestimate these desires. I mean, James, when he talks about it, he says it in quite a, quite a shocking way. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And then the commentators are sort of, is he, is he talking about like literal murder? Was that like the people in church killing each other? I mean, you thought our church was wild. <laughs> if, if it was literal, then James's church was a lot more wild than, than ours. But probably he's not, he's not, he doesn't mean it literally. Probably what he means, remember, um, James was Jesus's half-brother. He was also a son of Mary. Although Joseph was his biological father, which Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. And Jesus, so he obviously knew Jesus' teaching very well. And when you read through the book of James, you see Jesus' teaching popping up everywhere. But one of the things that Jesus taught is that if you are just angry with your brother without a cause, or if you hate your brother without a cause, you have already committed murder in your heart. And I think that's what James is talking about here. He's talking about the fact that there are quarrels, there are fights, there's anger, there's hatred in people's hearts, which, according to Jesus, his big brother, is murder. And, and, and here's the thing I want you to realize. This epithumia, this, this disordered desire, this idol, which is an idol because you... You desire it more than you desire God. You want it more than you want God. If getting it, obtaining it is blocked, you will become so angry that you'll, want, you'll commit murder in your heart, at least. Some people actually commit murder. 
But, if, but if, if you have a disordered desire and that thing is blocked or frustrated, someone gets in the way of that thing, you'll get so angry at them and you'll hate them so much, you'll, you'll at least murder them in your heart. And, and, and that is the power of idols. The power of idols is that it, it causes us to want things so badly that, that we, we completely um, lose control. Think a couple of years ago when, when, when there was this, this whole crash in the economy um, and, and the, the housing bubble burst and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when was it? 2008, somewhere around there. And a lot of people, especially in financial services, and who had been heavily invested in, in um, stocks and all that kind of stuff, lost a lot of money, lots of money. I mean, some people went completely bankrupt. Okay? And a lot of those people committed suicide. Some people didn't commit suicide. Now, now, let me tell you what was the difference between those who committed suicide and those who didn't. Those who committed suicide were those to whom money was an idol. They had a disordered desire, over-desire for money. And the thing is, when something, it's a normal desire to want to have enough money to be able to take care of yourself and your family. That's normal. But when it becomes an over-desire, disordered desire, you start thinking, I cannot live without it. And then when that thing is taken away, when it's threatened, you get angry and you start hating and you start lashing out to try and defend this thing. But when it's taken away, it's as though your reason to live has been taken away. And, and that's why many people committed suicide. Because that was the thing they were trusting in. That was the thing they couldn't live without. And here's the challenge to us. We've got to ask ourselves, do I have any such disordered desires in my heart, such over-desires, such things that I say, I cannot live without them, such things that I even say, Lord, I'll serve you as long as you make sure I have enough of that. Or, Lord, I'll serve you if you give me this. Then the whatever, Lord, I'll serve you as long as, or Lord, I'll serve you if, whatever follows the if or the as long as, that's your real God, not the Lord. So, so what we're talking about here is idolatrous desires. And, and James goes on and, and he calls it, uh, like I said last time, um, you know, it, it flows out of hedonistic desires, selfish desires. Self-indulgence, self-gratification. And he says those, those desires, those selfish, hedonistic desires war inside of us. And, and if you just think about it, you, you'll realize that as natural people, as, as normal as human beings, we have all kinds of desires fighting inside of us. All kinds of even conflicting desires. Let, let me give you one example. This, this is just by way of example. I mean, there are obviously... Thousands of examples, but let me give you one example. Our, our modern society, one of our highest values is freedom. We want to be free. But the problem is so often we define freedom as, as absolute freedom, freedom from constraints. I'm only free if, if nothing or no one can prevent me or stop me or hinder me from doing what I want to do. There must be no hindrances, no constraints. Now, already some of you will see a problem with that because you realize that um, 
freedom from all constraints is not really freedom. If, 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 if you say, okay, fish is only free if it can be outside of the constraints of water, it's not really free. It's, it's not, at least it's not going to be free for a long time. <laughs> if it says, I'm a free fish, I'm going to jump out of the water, it's going to be free for a few seconds and then it's going to die. It's going to be a dead fish. Okay, and then it's not going to be free anymore. Okay, so, but we want that freedom. We want that absolute freedom. So, so many people have this desire for absolute freedom. And I had an interview with a, a lady. She was quite old. Um, she was a very, um, very vocal feminist as well. So, so f- this whole issue of freedom was very important to her. And, and the interview was saying, also a lady was saying, you know, you must be very proud of yourself. You, you, you really lived in a way, in this freedom that you so fight for. And she said, yeah, for most of my life. I lived, you know, that freedom, freedom from all constraint. But there was this one time when I was not free, and that was when I was in love. Because here's the problem, and, and, and here's the conflicting desire. We desire freedom, but we also desire love. But all love is a loss of freedom. If you love someone and you want to live with them, you have to give up some of your freedom to do that. You, you can't just do whatever you want to anymore. Now you actually have to tell your spouse, this is what I'm going to do. In fact, you have to discuss it with them. You know, what are we, we going to do? It's not just what I have to want to do. It's now about what we want to do together. My money is no longer just my own to make decisions about. I have to discuss it with my wife and we have to make decisions together, etc., etc. So it's, a, it's clearly a loss of freedom. You cannot anymore just do what you want to do you cannot just please yourself you now actually want to please the person that you're in love with so you gladly lose some of your freedom and in the end she says for that little time when i was in love i lost my freedom but then i gave up on relationships and i was just free for the rest of my life (laughs) but can you see those conflicting desires the desire for freedom but also the desire for love and if you're not, and, the, and they had war inside of us. And if, if you're not willing to give up some of your freedom, you will never truly experience love, be able to receive it or give it. And you'll be lonely. So the, those desires war inside of us. They're they, 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 they in conflict uh, inside of us. Now, <clears throat> at the heart of that, like I say, those, this hedonistic desire is a, is a self-centered, selfish self-indulgent desire it's it's you know james goes on in the scripture to refer to it more than once in verse 6 and then later in verse 10 as pride though the proud god resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble and and it's 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 a distorting pride so our disordered desires come from the distorting pride inside of our hearts and 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 pride makes us See ourselves as the center of the universe. Um, I don't know if you guys, uh, Philip, you can just put up that that picture of um, of the Earth and the Sun. And um, I just uh, put up two slides with pictures of of the Earth and the Sun. And I, I mentioned this at the end of of my my previous sermon as well. We, the world and and humanity, and even can you, can you put it up or? Okay, you don't have it. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you guys had the slides. Anyway. Um, we, we, as humanity, we started off thinking that we, 
the Earth is the center of the universe and everything else orbits around it. And, and so often that's how we see our lives. We see ourselves like the ancients saw the earth as the center of the universe. And with Copernicus and those guys, a major paradigm shift came, a major shift in mind came where they realized, because they, they looked at the, the stars and stuff and they said, well, if the stars are orbiting and the sun is orbiting the, the earth, well, the sun, it looks like it's orbiting the earth because the earth obviously rotates its own axis. But when you look at the stars, they, they're supposed to just orbit in a continuous smooth orbit. But what they do is they go back forward and then they stop and then they go backwards. And then they move in all kinds of funny ways that they're not supposed to do. And, and it's like that. If you see yourself as the center of your universe, all kinds of funny things, you, you won't understand what's going on around you. Things will happen that will look strange to you. But then when they realize, no, the sun is the center of the, uh, our solar system and the earth is actually orbiting the sun, things change dramatically. And then all of a sudden, things make sense. But, but we need that. We need that kind of paradigm shift from being pridefully self-centered to be centered around God. Now, he says, God resists the proud, but he uh, gives grace to the humble. Now, m most modern people don't actually like humility, or many modern people at least don't like humility, because when they think of humility, they actually think of bad self-esteem. They think of people who are doormats, who just allow everyone to step on them. They think of people who are not assertive. Okay? They think that's what humility means. But that's not humility. Humility is not so much, think, as C.S. Lewis said, humility is not so much thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's just not being the center of your own universe, not measuring everything in relation to yourself. Not always just thinking, what's in it for me? How can I benefit from this? So humility is not thinking less of yourself. In fact, in order to be humble, you need a deep-set confidence. In order to be humble, to not care what other people think of you, you need to know who you are by knowing what God thinks of you. So there's a deep-lying confidence that must underlie um, humility. Um, let me just read you a few. Um, Jonathan Edwards uh, the famous 17th, he lived in like the 1700s somewhere. Um, and he was a famous pastor and an evangelist. And, and he, he, God used him to start the, the first great awakening. In fact, I think he was involved in about three great revivals where the church in, in that area, New England, grew exponentially during his time. But, he, but all three of those revivals ultimately fizzled out. Okay, many of them lasted for quite a few years and had a massive impact and even a long-lasting impact, but none of them lasted indefinitely. And he said, when he, when he sort of looked back and evaluated why did these revivals falter after a couple of years, he said it was because of pride, mainly because of pride, spiritual pride. And he said the reason was pride is very difficult to see. It's hard to see pride. Sometimes you can see the fruit of pride. So, so he listed about seven different fruits or consequences of pride. I'm just going to quickly go through them as a tool for us to measure ourselves by, just to see how we are doing. 
Okay? So the first thing he said was that a proud person already thinks that they know everything. So when someone tries to teach them, they get offended by it. Why, why are you trying to teach me? Why, why are you trying to tell me this? I, I, I already know everything there is to know. In other words, proud people are unteachable. Whereas humble people are not only teachable, not only do they, they think, they, they, not only are they open to the fact that they don't know everything, but they're even open to the fact that some of the things that they do know is wrong. Some of the things that they do know are uh, that they think they are right are actually wrong. So they're open to be corrected. So he says teachability is one of the first signs of humility. Second one is pride. Uh, spiritual pride makes, makes you more aware of others' faults than your own. Spiritual humility makes you far more aware of your own faults than that of others. In other words, when... In your, just in your general life, are you, do you complain more and pray more about other people's faults? Lord, ugh, you know how so-and-so irritates me with that thing that he does. You know, and it's all the time, every day. And I'm sick of it. Lord, don't you want to change him, please? <laughs> but not being aware of your own fault. In spouses, this is usually, you know, we try and change each other. You know, the, the one spouse always tries, to, always trying to, to, trying to change the other spouse. You know, and the other spouse is trying to change this one. You're always trying to convince one another of, 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 you know, your mistakes. Second one is pride leads you when you speak to other uh, of others' faults to speak in contempt of that other person. Humility means that when you do speak of other people's faults, you do so with grief and mercy. That's w- w- you know, humility won't cause you to ignore other people's faults, but it will cause you to deal with them in humility, in, 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 in grief and mercy. Uh, fourth one, pride leads you to quickly separate from people who criticize you um, or people you criticize. You are either cold to them or you avoid them. Spiritual humility means that you stick with people in difficult relationships. You don't give up on them. So, you know, if, 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 if you've if you find that, you know, after a while, you know, you, 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 you're no longer surrounded or you're no longer in contact with people who criticize you or people who irritate you, then you, re- then you, then you must know there's probably some spiritual pride, some, some deep-set pride in your heart. Proud peop- a proud person is dogmatic and sure about um, every point of belief. Proud people cannot distinguish between major and major, minor points of belief because everything the proud person believes is major. Because I believe it. <laughs> it's important because I believe it. So they, they, they end up um, constantly being in arguments and in conflict with other people. A proud person either loves to confront because they love winning, or they refuse to confront because they're afraid of losing. A humble person confronts only when it's necessary. And when they do confront, they speak the truth in love and in humility. Last one, a proud person is often unhappy and sorry for themselves. This is because they are so sure that they know how life ought to go, firstly. And then secondly, they are so sure that they deserve such a good life. (laughs) The humble person says, I deserve to be cast off, but only by God's grace am I living. I don't know what is best for me. God knows what's best for me.
So how are we doing? Are you as convicted as I am? I think just going through those seven points by Jonathan Edwards, I think is enough to surface the reality that in every one of our hearts there's probably pride, at least some pride. So what is this pride and this, this, this distorting pride and this disordered desires? What does it lead to? Firstly, it leads to, it, it, well, let me, let me just say what James says. It leads to um, disordered relationships. And, and, he, and he talks about human relationships, and he says there's fights, there's quarrels, there's all kinds of, of arguing and fighting and, and so on. And, and the reason for that is, let, let me put it to you this, let me, wait, this, let me put it to you bluntly. When, when we have idolatrous desires in our hearts, in other words, when we desire certain things more than God, when, when we make something else, put something else above God in our lives, it inevitably leads to functional atheism. What, what do I mean by that? It means that we start, because actually in our hearts, God is not in the place of God. We actually don't believe he is God, and we don't live as if he is God. So even though in our heads and with our mouths we'll confess and say, because we're good Christians and we know what's true, yes, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the creator of heavens and earth, and in Jesus Christ his only. I believe in God. We can say all the right confessions. But we'll become functional atheists because even though we say the right things, we say we believe the right things, we live as if those things are not true. Even though we say we believe in God, we live as if there is no God. And if you live as if there is no God, you live as if the limited resources that we have to share is all there is. In other words, there's, there's one pie, it's only so big, and we have to fight to get a bigger slice. I have to fight to get a bigger slice because my disorders, desires, my hedone, hedonistic desires wants a bigger slice. And that's why I quarrel and I fight and I argue and I bicker and I commit murder in my heart to get a bigger slice of the limited pie that is available. And so often we live like functional atheists, even us who are Christians. But not only that, in other words, what, what, what James says in, in, in verse, verse 3, he says, well, firstly, verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. In other words, you, you, have, you have two options. If you live as if there really is a God, don't only confess that there's a God, but actually live as if there's a God, then you, you'll say, but there's an unlimited source. God is the unlimited source, the creator of heaven and earth. To him belongs the cattle of a thousand hills. The earth is his and the fullness of it. The world and those who dwell in it, everything belongs to him. I can just ask him and he'll give it to me. So I live because I really believe in God. I live as if God is real and I ask him for whatever I need. I don't fight for the little limited pie, a bigger slice of the little limited pie. I say, God, please give me what I, what I need. You know what I need. I trust you for what I need. And you are an unlimited source. You can give me anything. So I just ask you for it and you faithfully provide. But then he says, uh, so that's the one, uh, the one contrast between fighting with people to, to get 
you know, bigger slice of the limited pie, or asking God, who has unlimited resources. But the other thing is, he says, but even when you do ask, sometimes you don't receive because you ask wrongly that you might spend it on your hedonistic pleasures and your hedonistic desires. In other words, our disordered desires can even infiltrate our prayer life if we're not careful. And we'll start asking God for things that we think we should have according to our hedonistic desires rather than things that God knows that we need. And that's also a kind of functional atheism. It's, Lord, I'm just going to use you as a mean to, to an end to get what I want, not to get what you want from me. In other words, there are two approaches to prayer. Well, three, actually. The one is not to pray. <laughs> that's the first approach to prayer, <laughs> is not to pray, not to ask. The second approach to prayer is to ask for what I want. In other words, prayer is a means by which I twist God's arm to give me what I want. Okay, but the problem is, when you, if you've tried that, and I'm sure all of us have, God has a rubber arm. <laughs> you can twist it as much as you like. And when you let go, it's going to spin. <laughs> and maybe give you a few slaps, you know, to wake you up, you know, while it's spinning. <laughs> the third way of approaching prayer is, prayer is a means of getting, obtaining what God wants for me. The first two are functional atheist ways of praying. Not praying or praying only to get what I want. If we do that, we are functional atheists. If we are truly believing God and live as if God is really there, we'll pray to get not what we want, but what He wants for us primarily. And the other thing is, so often we pray... We pray for our desires to be fulfilled more than we pray for our desires to be formed. This is very important. What do we ask when we pray? What do we spend most of our prayer time on? Is it like a shopping list of things that God must give us? Or is it God, I realize, because... I'm humble. I've humbled myself in the sight of the Lord. I realize that there are all these kinds of problems in my heart. There are all these kinds of disordered desires, hedonistic desires. There are all kinds of pride in my heart. Lord, help me deal with that. Lord, deliver me from this pride, from these idolatrous desires. Set me free from that. Do I actually pray for that more? So that when I do ask for things, I'm asking for the right things in the right way. I'm asking for the things that God wants for me and that will glorify God ultimately, not only benefit me. So, <clears throat> here's, here's the thing. If you have disordered desires that flow out of distorting pride in your heart, you will end up using everyone around you. And that's why you have you know, disordered relationships, because you end up using everyone around you, because in your heart, you're the center of your universe. So one guy said, Thomas Howard, he said, there are two ways to live. My life for you, or my life for me. Those are the two ways to live. My life for you, or my life for me. And... Our natural inclination is to live 
your life for me and my life for me. <laughs> but God in the gospel turned that around. The, the one who could have demanded and said, everyone must live your life for me. He came, Jesus, and, and he lived the ultimate, my life for you. Laying down his life for us, setting an example for us. So that we can know that the most powerful person in the universe is already laying down his life for us. He, he didn't just do it on the cross. It says he's still at the right hand of the Father every day praying for us, interceding for us. And unlike us, he doesn't, when he asks, he doesn't ask wrongly. <laughs> so he may spend it on his hedonistic desires because he doesn't have any. He asks rightly for us. And the Father hears him. Okay, and um, just in closing, in verse 5, it talks about, is that, that verse that I said, um, the Spirit who he, he calls to dwell in us longs or yearns jealously. I think the Holy Spirit is, is the key to changing our disordered desires. Why does the earth orbit around the sun instead of the sun orbiting around the earth? Just on a scientific level, why? Shout, shout out the answer. Mass and gravity. Gravity. The sun is, has more gravity, it has more weight than the earth, right? That's why the smaller earth orbits the lighter earth orbits the heavier, more weighty sun. Now, now the word glory means weight. Chabot in the, in the Hebrew means weight, weightiness. We don't have enough weight to be at the center of our universe. But the Spirit of God, who carries the full glory and therefore the full weight of God, has come to live inside of us. And right inside of us, He can cause that shift in center of gravity from us to him. And he can, God placed him inside of us so that he can become the center of our gravity, the center of our lives, the center of our solar system, the center of our uh, universe. But So he decenters us. He decenters us. But he also desires us. Look at, look at what it says. It says the spirit he caused to dwell in us longs or yearns jealously. What do you have a right to be jealous of or jealous for? Something or someone who really belongs to you. You're supposed to be jealous of them. But, but it uses two words. It doesn't just say he longs for us or he's jealous for us. It, he, the, James intensifies it. He says, you guys have no idea how strong the desire of the Spirit is for you. He desires you. And, 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 and the good news is, because He is God, His holy desire for us is stronger than our unholy desire for other things. And if we constantly just interact with Him and allow Him to, to do His work and surrender more of our heart to Him, then our heart's desires will ultimately submit to His desire. He wants us. He desires us. And His desire can overpower our desire. That's why He lives inside of us. He can change us from the inside out. That's the good news. Now, this doesn't happen automatically. We have to repent. 
Okay? I know some of you, when you got saved, you th- and God did deliver you mightily from many, all kinds of wrong desires and stuff, and you were like testifying and say, God, you know, has changed my life. I'm a new person with new desires. And then a week on, all of a sudden, some of those old desires started to surface. And all of a sudden, you realize that the devil's not actually dead. He's actually still there, and, and now you're a bit more of a target to him. And, and you realize, okay, some things God changed like that. Easy. But some things he wants me to be an active participant in, and he wants me to actively repent of them. And that's what the, the rest of the verses in, in, in chapter 4 are about. It says, he says, weep and mourn and repent. Don't be double-minded. Repent of your double-mindedness. I just want us to stand quickly. I'm just going to ask the, the band to play softly. Just play, play softly in the background. But we don't have to wait. We don't have to wait for temptation to come before we fight it. We can do a proactive, preemptive strike by fighting the disordered desires in our hearts and dealing with them, identifying them and dealing with them now. And I know in each one of your hearts, the Holy Spirit has already started convicting you of pride and disordered desires that you need to deal with and shown you some of the fruit of these things in your life. So while the, the band is just playing softly in the background, I want you to just close your eyes and just I want, I want you to do business with the Lord. And I want you to bring those things before the Lord. And, and I, I want you to do two things. I want you to just confess them before the Lord and repent of them and say, God, I know that these, this pride, this, this, this distorting pride in my heart and these disordered desires that flow out of it, selfish desires that flow out of it, Lord, I know it's not pleasing to you and it, it's actually not pleasing to me. I don't want it. Lord, I repent of it. I turn away from it and I ask you to deliver me from it. That's the one thing. I just quickly want you to pray that. Just take a couple of minutes and Father God, we just confess to you that we do have pride in our hearts. 
so often we are very selfish Lord and in hundreds of little ways every day our lives say my life for me and your life for me instead of my life for you Jesus we thank you Lord that you on the cross said the ultimate my life for you and that you assure us that you will take care of us we don't have to take care of ourselves we don't have to fight for ourselves we can just ask you for what we need and you will take care of us and we thank you for that assurance Lord and we, we just repent of that Lord that distorting pride in our hearts that wants to make us the center of gravity in our lives, the center of our own universe. We just repent of that and we say, Jesus, you be the center. Let us orbit and let everyone else orbit around you. And Lord, we repent, Lord, of these disordered desires that we have in our hearts, Lord. This desire, these desires for comfort, desires for autonomy, Lord, to be able to control ourselves and to be in control of everything around us. Lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of those things, Lord, we, we just repent of it, we lay it down and we pray, Lord, that you'll come and work on our hearts, Lord, more, more than fulfill our desires we need you to form our desires Lord so that our desires line up with your desires for us so that our hearts conform to your heart your noble heart your selfless heart your divine heart your holy heart come and change our hearts to be more like your heart we set our hearts on you we also realize, Lord, that it's, it's not a quick fix, Lord, and that it's a process. And therefore, we pray, Lord, that as we, as we leave this morning, that you will continue to help us, remind us of the things that we repented of now. I just, I just want to give you actually a bit of homework that I feel the Lord is actually giving to us. I feel the Lord wants you to just write down. Some of you would have written some of that down last time already, but just go and write down what are what are the what is the pride and what is the dis, what are the disordered desires that the Holy Spirit convicted you of that you need to repent of and that you need to continuously repent of. So write them down, number one, and then confess them to someone. You you need someone in your life, either a spouse or someone close to you, someone who's a uh, accountability belt, someone you can trust. Confess it to them and say, this is what the Holy Spirit is convicting me of. This is what He wants to change in my heart. And I, I, I want you to keep me accountable in this area. Encourage me to constantly bring it before the Lord. Encourage me to constantly crucify the flesh in this area. Encourage me to constantly be vigilant in this area. And encourage me to constantly grow in this area your help, my brother or my sister. 
Yes, Lord, we, we just pray, Lord God, that you'll continue to mold us and make us. Firstly, our desires and our... Help us to be so God-centered, Lord, that you determine everything else that goes on in our lives and that you mold and make our desires so that they're centered on you. Help us, Lord. We are so often captives of our own disordered desires, victims of our own disordered desires. And we pray that you will help us to be free from them. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer in this area, I just want you to come forward. Sometimes it's it's good if you if you don't try and deal with these things alone, but if you just that's it's part of humility is just sharing what you're struggling with with other people so that and, and saying, Lord, I need help in this. I cannot handle this alone. That that's that's part of humility and and and, and some of you need need to take that step of humbling yourself before someone else and, and just confessing to them what you're struggling with and, and, and asking them to pray for you. Because part of what pride says is I don't I want anyone's help. I don't want anyone's I don't need anyone's help. And just maybe to break that thing, if it's hard for you to ask for help and to receive help, then you must use that opportunity and just come forward and ask someone to pray with you. Otherwise, the Lord bless you um, as you go. Remember, we don't come to church. We are the church. Right? We are the church. I always think of it in this way. The word church, the two center letters are you are. What is the church? You are. <laughs> okay? What is the church? You are. So when you go out, you're not leaving church. You are the church and you're going out to be church. In your family, amongst your friends, amongst your colleagues, wherever you are. Lord, I just bless your people and I send them now to go and be the church wherever they are. With one another, Lord, as they eat lunch um, as they fellowship, I just send them with your blessing and Holy Spirit with your presence. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us and that you are in us and that you help us in our weakness and that you're constantly encouraging us. And Lord, I just pray by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the constant abiding, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit be with all of us in Jesus' name. Bless you as you go, so that you can be a blessing wherever you go. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.